This morning we're going to be, again, uh, picking up in our series, The Seven, uh, talking about the churches uh, that Jesus writes to in the book of the Revelation. Um, but we do want to pause for a moment, and uh, even though a lot of our fathers are traveling, I don't know what happened this year. For some reason, Father's Day became the traveling weekend, um, and everybody traveled. Our elders, except for Tom and I, are all gone. Uh, Bob Bragdon is gone. Um, I think Doc is traveling. Um, I, let's see, who else? Who? Greg. Greg is gone. Yeah, yeah, he was grouped in the elders. So Brianna's gone. Ryan's here. Ryan's around. I think he's working somewhere. Um, but we're so it's just been um, you know we've had couples that families are traveling. It's just been an interesting weekend. But anyway, hey, if you're a dad um, and you're here, kudos. You know, you managed to pull off being a father. It, actually, we should probably be thanking your wives. Uh, but anyway, uh, so today is Father's Day. Hopefully you called your dad. Um, you know, texting really doesn't count. Uh, you know, uh, my wife has finally figured out after how many years? Let's see, I've been a dad for nine years. She's finally figured out not to spend money on a card and just take a picture of it with her phone and show it to me. Um, because I am, I am not a, you know, if you, guys, you guys may know, those of you who know me for a while know that I'm not a... Um, I'm not a paper person. I, I, cards, the, the messages are wonderful and amazing, and then I feel guilty because I lose them immediately. Um, so, uh, so that's why you'll see people hand me things. I immediately whip out my phone and I take a picture of it because I will lose it. Um, this is just my personality. But anyway, so today is Father's Day. My daughter asked me what I wanted to do for Father's Day, and I, I really want to go to Arby's. I have no idea why. Um, it's just... Just something that happens every once in a while. It's momentary and temporary insanity. And um, so, but uh, anyway, um, so happy Father's Day. And uh, I'm going to head down sometime this week and go see my dad and see what trouble he's getting into. Um, probably play banjo with him. And uh, he plays banjo. I don't play banjo. Um, but uh, but uh, I don't have the hand-to-eye coordination. I got distracted. Oh, did I mention I don't have the attention span um, to, to learn that instrument? Anyway, let's, let's go ahead and take a look at the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Um, the church of Philadelphia, we're going to be in verse 7. Um, and uh, we have so far, we've looked at five churches. Um, so we're at the, the tail end. And the last two churches um, in the, this section of Revelation, the church of Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea, um, they, they are... In essence, they're kind of a a a, a, um, a mirror image of each other, uh, and so they are they are really Jesus's concluding points. Um, one is good and one is bad. I've been mentioning through the whole time that we've been studying this passage that there are two good churches, two bad churches, and three um, ugly churches. That they really have a hard time finding a balance and they're struggling and they have good and bad. Then there are two churches that are good um, and then there are two churches that are bad. Well, these last two, Philadelphia is one of the good ones and Laodicea is the worst of the bad. Um, and so these two give us a kind of a bookend of the relationship of churches and how they interact and and particularly how they journey with the world. And we're going to be looking um, in verse 7, and I invite you to read, it, read with me as I go through here. Uh, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy 
and true. Literally, um, the Holy One, the True One. Who holds the key of David. When he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my commandment to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown, your victory wreath. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's let's pause for a moment and, and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do truly want to hear what your Spirit has to say. Lord, we ask that you would um, enliven our hearts and our minds. Lord, open our eyes, challenge us where we need to be challenged, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, strengthen where we need to be strengthened, weaken where we need to be weakened. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in our midst as we look to your word, the written word which reveals the living word. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The Church of Philadelphia is unique among the seven churches in um, in the Revelation because it was a new ch- a new um, city. There was no city at Philadelphia um, until about around the around 200 180 um, BC, um, when a guy named Eumenes, who was the ruler of the kingdom in that area, uh, decided to build a city. Um, and to build kind of a watch point in the midst of a valley that invading armies could come through. And he named it after his son, after his brother, a guy named Atlas. Um, you say, Philadelphia Atlas, I don't see how that works. Um, well, Atlas was actually uh, Eumenes' older brother. And, uh, and he had chosen, rather than to become king, which was his right, he had chosen to serve his brother because he knew that Eumenes was a better king. He would make a better leader. And so Attalus was called Philadelphian, the brother lover, that he loved his brother and he was loyal to his brother. Um, Philos means love. Adelphios, um, Adelphos is, is brother. Adelphion, Adelphoi, uh, Adelphoi um, is brother. And so he was called uh, the, the lover of his brother. He was a devoted, loyal brother. He was a great general. He was a great commander, very tactical mind. And so um, Eumenes said, well, you know what? I need to build this. I need to build this kind of watch city. And so he named it after his brother and he called it Philadelphia. I mean, and uh, he gave it to his brother as his fortress, kind of, and that was his job. Now, Philadelphia was in an artificial area. It was not a good place to build a city. Um, it was far away from natural sources of water, um, and so they had to they had to pump water in. They had to use um, aqueducts and stuff to bring water in. Same thing's true of Laodicea. We'll talk Laodicea. We'll talk about that next week. Um, but um, 
it was it was in a volcanic region, so there were a lot of things that didn't grow well. Um, they they were able to grow a lot of um, a lot of grapevines grow well in volcanic soil, so they made a lot of wine. Um, you know, uh, not surprising, the chief deity they worshipped was Dionysius, the god of wine, um, because if that's all you've got, I mean, it's like, ah, what are we going to do tonight? Drink wine. Um, this is, but that was their culture, that was their society, so everything had to be brought in from outside. So it was never a big city. Um, it, it was probably around 30, 35,000 people. Now today, we would consider that a town. In those days, that was a city. Um, and it's, it was primarily a place for the military to be stationed. Um, but there, were, uh, there was a Jewish community that had been imported from Babylon um, by a, a king named Antiochus. Uh, he had brought a large number of Jews out of uh, the region of Mesopotamia, and he had transplanted them in Asia Minor. So this is a different group. If you remember from a few weeks ago, I talked about there was a group of Jewish mercenaries that lived in Asia. Um, in, in Turkey. Um, this is a separate group of Jews. This is a Hebrew-speaking Jews. Those, Jews. those spoke Greek. These speak Hebrew. So this was the situation of the city, and we don't know exactly what happened, how this church got started. Because Philadelphia, like I said, was not a big town. It was essentially a suburb of, of Smyrna and uh, or Sardis and Laodicea. It was kind of in between the two of them. It was a military outpost. It was um, and so where this church came from, nobody's completely sure where it came from. But what we do know is that it was, it was like the other seven churches, a church that was under tremendous tension, under tremendous pressure. Uh, the Greek word phlepsis, um, that, that external pressure that's pulling and pushing and, and moving. Um, but it's a good church. And so when Jesus writes to them, um, he, he creates for them a, an image, and, and I'm going to try to illustrate. This is one of the hardest ones to really kind of illustrate what they meant, what, what Jesus means, because most of the references that are made in here seem to have been lost, why this was so significant to them. But, but he, he creates a, a sandwich, basically. Um, now, now I'm thinking more about Arby's. Um, but he, he creates this sandwich, and on the top of it, he, he uses this image of the key of David. Um, and on the bottom of it, he's going to use an image, the new Jerusalem. Now let me ask you a question. When you hear key of David and new Jerusalem, do you think Jew or Gentile? Those are Jewish images, right? Um, David was the king of Israel. New, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. So the Jewish images. But in between these two pieces is a holy and completely Greek image, a Greek idea. And so he, he, this letter is really a sandwiching of these, these two ideas together, these, these two cultures together. And it represents for us the fact that um, by the time this letter was written, there was no longer a distinction between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. The church had become completely infused. Now what do I mean by that? I mean that the, the Gentile believers had come to embrace their Jewish past. They had come to understand that when the Old Testament speaks about the people of God and all that stuff, that was their past. Just as their Gentile past was their past, this was their past. It was fused together. And Jew and Gentile lived together in the present pressure 
And Jews were, on, were now comfortable with accepting, the believing Jews were now comfortable with accepting the Gentile ideas, the Gentile imagery and culture. And the church had truly become something that had never existed before. It was neither Jew nor Gentile, and yet it was both. And so this is, this is really, we get a chance to see what the church had become. Everybody, all the interpreters of history want to say, well, there were Jewish believers and there were Gentile believers and they were separate and they never reconciled and, 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 and we lost the Jewish nature when we became the church. Well, that's not what we see in the Revelation. In the Revelation, the two simply come together and they fit together seamlessly. Nowhere in any of the commentaries on Revelation from the ancient, uh, the ancient writers do we have them saying, well, this part was for the Jews and this part was for the Gentiles. They had become one church. So let's talk about the images that he, he portrays. The first one is that he speaks of the key of David. Now, I'm not going to get into too much, but this is taken from Isaiah chapter 22. Um, and it is a statement, um, God speaking to Isaiah and speaking to the people of Israel, or the people of Judah, says, I'm going to give the key of David to a king. The guy's name was Eliakim. Um, and he will have the ability to open or close the gates, and whatever he opens stays open, whatever he closes stays closed. All right? Nobody can open it, nobody can close it. Now he's talking, in Isaiah, it's talking physically, actually, exactly what's going on. That there was going to be a king at the end of the kingdom of, of Judah who had to, to make a choice whether he would open the gates to the conquering ba Babylonians or he would keep the gates closed. Now the gospel of Jer or, yeah the gospel of Jeremiah the prophet Jeremiah his entire ministry was open the gates let the Babylonians in we sinned we need to be punished let them in that was his whole message and of course they chose not to and there was a siege and there was a whole kind of stuff that goes on so this image though although in Isaiah it's projected upon Eliakim it's also broadened out to mean the Messiah. Um, when Jesus says to his disciples, uh, I give you the keys to the kingdom, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, he says that to his disciples, he's saying, I am the Messiah, I am the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah, I am the son of David, I am everything you've been waiting for, follow me, that's what he's saying. So he makes this assertion again in Revelation chapter 3, and he says, um, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, the key of David, the access to the kingdom, the opening of the doors to those who are outside belongs to me. And then he says, I have opened the door for you, and no man can shut it. And then he launches into this extremely different statement look at what he says he says i've opened the door he says that in verse 8 see i have placed before you an open door i know they have little strength so he says i open the door i know they have a little strength now what on earth does strength have to do with an open door what is he trying to say there where is he going with that well we've got to keep reading he says I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He talks about the synagogue of Satan, and he says, to, he says about them at the tail end of verse 9, he says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Okay, you have little strength. People are going to come and bow at your feet and tell you that I... Okay, verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. 
Okay? This gives us a little bit of a hint. I will also keep you from the hour of trial. Look in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, that is actually the key to what he is talking about. That no man will take his, your crown. In Greek, the word crown is stephanos. The word Stephen comes from it. Um, our word for victor or word for uh, overcoming. Um, in Greek culture, they had what are called the Stephanatic, the Panhellenic Games. Um, they're named after Ste- the Stephanos, but I'm not going to be able to name it. I'm not going to be able to pronounce the word, so I'm just going get, to get around it. There were four major races in Greek culture. There was one held every four years. Anyone want to guess what that one was called? All right, the Olympics. Um, then there were the, the Ismithian Games, and there were the uh, Nemitic Games, and there's another one. I can't remember what it, what it was called. But anyway, there were, there were four, and you had an Olympic year, and then you would have one, and then you would have uh, another one, and then you, would, you had Olympic year, then one, and then the Isthmus Games, and then another one, and then the Olympics, and, and that was how it worked. There were, there were four. And each one of these, um, these races, which were held pretty much every year, uh, the victor got what was called the Stephanos, um, the, the victor's wreath. You know, you see Caesar, you know, oh, hail Caesar, and they've always got the, the thingy on their head. They, it looks like they put a, put a Christmas wreath on their head. Um, those were those were the Stephanoi. Those were the crowns. Those were the victor's crowns. And there were four um, that you could win. And the idea was that if, if a, a runner could win all four, he could go from one Olympic to the next and win every one of the major races. That was like, that was like what's it called, the triple crown. It's like after he finishes it, they just put him out the pasture. Um, but, this was, but this was what they did. They had these racing games. There was decathlons and there were sprints and there was all this stuff, the stadion. Um, there were all these different runs. But what, what you would do, each one of these games had a different wreath that was associated with it. So the Olympics, they ran for an olive branch. One of them, my favorite has got to be, and I can't remember the name of it is, but one of these races they ran for, and I know this isn't what they mean, but the Greek word is celery. And I just have this image of this guy going up on the victor's thing and they've just taken a crown of celery and putting it in it. It's like, oh, some buffalo wings. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, and so it, it had to have been made from the leaves of the celery. One of them, the other one was parsley. There was a, a parsley crown and then there was a pine crown. Um, you know, and so I just, I'm like, and then you take the crown and make a pasta sauce and you're all set. Um, but, uh, but this is, this is what they did. They would, they would run for these, uh, laurel, by the way, I found out is actually bay leaves. I didn't know that. So a laurel wreath is made of bay leaves. So it really is a pasta sauce. When you're done, you just make sauce. Um, unfortunately they hadn't uncovered tomatoes, which were a new world, um, vegetable, but anyway, so they would run for these crowns. And when you ran for these crowns, when you, when you were engaged in the race, um, you, were, you were intent on accomplishing the goal. You were intent on finishing the race. Now, in our world, when you run a race, right, they do what? They put the, the tape or whatever across for you to take... Oh! You know, and, and you, you ran the race, and aren't you excited? It's fantastic you finished the race. Well, in the ancient world, um, you ran the race, and when the person that won the race was the person who ran through the gate that was opened at the end of the race. There was a, a door. There was a gate so that you couldn't escape the track, 
And they opened that up when you finished your last lap, and that was what you ran for. You ran for that open door. Because the first person through the open door got the Stephanos, got the crown. So when, when he takes this image of the race and he says, I have opened a door before you. He says, behold, I have opened a door that no man can shut. He says, look at the race. Now, how many of you run? How many of you have ever run competitively? Or, you, all right. First of all, can't stand you people. Um, but secondly, um, you know, one time Ray Brown says to me, he goes, we're going to, he's like, uh, he's like, you should go running with me. And I'm looking at Ray. And I mean, his, his waist is like right here. I'm going, I'm not running with you unless you're carrying me. I'm like, I, I'd have to take, the, it'd be like that, that old, you know, Looney Tunes, you know, where there's a big bulldog walking along and there's this little one jumping over top of him. I'm like, hey, Ray, how you doing? You know, I'm not, no way. I got little legs. My legs are shorter than my arms. Uh, you know, but, uh, but see, that's, I just don't run. But I, you know, when you get to the end of a run, the longest run I ever did was six miles in college. And, and, um, I, I took me a week and a half to recover and I swore I would never do it again. Um, but you know, when you're running and you know that the end is there and your muscles are failing because you run as hard as you possibly could and your body is wiped out and you are parched and you are hungry and you just want to lay down and let the other runners run over you and end your misery. And you see that open door. This was the idea. These guys had run as hard as humanly possible to get to the end of this. And they saw the open door and, they would, and the people standing around them would cheer. Their coaches would cheer. The door is open. Run. Look, the door is open. Run. And these guys would run their heart out to get to that open door. And when they got to the end, it was the victor's crown. Now does Jesus' words, do Jesus' words make a little more sense? I know you have little strength. Look at what he says. I know you have little strength, but you've kept my word. You've done the course. You've moved along. And here's the open door. Look at it. Run. Then he says to them, and here's where some of this other stuff starts to make, make more sense. He says to him, behold, he says, there it is. See, I have placed before you an open door. So look for it. And then he says to them, he says, I know there are those around you, the synagogue of Satan. He says, but you know what? When you get to the end of the race, guess what? They're going to have to bow down to you because you ran. So that's what you did in that, in that world when you finished a race and you were the victor. There was no first, second, and third place. There was first place and a bunch of losers. That's the way the race worked. There was no, oh, make the guys who ran second and third feel good. You know, It was, you get a crown, the rest of you run better next year. That was the way it worked. And he says to them, and what they would do at the end of that race is everyone bowed down to the man wearing the Stephanos. I'm sorry, ladies, it was only a male thing. It was also only a Greek thing. So we're stuck. Um, none of us could run it. This is actually my justification for never running again. Not Greek. Um, so no reason. Uh, but they would, they would run to the end of this race and everybody that opposed them, he says, you have, in verse 10, he says, since you have kept my commandment to endure patiently. You kept running. When you get to the end, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. I'm going to bring you out of this. Now, we cannot comprehend 
the amount of training these people went through. I mean, we, we have our professional athletes and they train and everything. Until you've actually seen a professional athlete train, you can't appreciate what they do. Their, their conditioning is so extraordinary. Um, and it seems to be that this, the reason that Jesus uses this is probably because there had been a famous runner who had come out of Philadelphia that we don't know about. There was somebody that they could identify this with immediately, somebody who had done something extraordinary. Um, and that's, that's entirely what my dad used to call divine imagination. I can't prove it. It just seems like there's something. there was something that they would immediately identify with. This runner who had done something extraordinary. He says, because you have, you've kept my command to endure patiently. See, here's the other thing about Greek racing. In our modern world, right, the racers, they get in their lanes, they stay in their lanes, they run along. In the Greek world, running was training for military action. So guess, in fact, there was a race in the Olympics where they ran with full armor. That would have been cool. Uh, I, just, I just clang, 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 uh, the, whole, the whole way. But when you ran, it was perfectly okay. In these races, it was perfectly okay to trip somebody, to punch them, to get in their way, to push them into the side of the... That was all legal. That was, it was like the WWE of foot racing. All right? This was, it, was, it was mixed martial arts. That might be a better... I mean, you just imagine guys running on as hard as they possibly can, punching you in the back of the head. Why are you running so fast? Why are you running so fast? I mean, it just, this, this must have been such a spectacle. And so when somebody got to the end of the race, they were beat, they were bruised, they were exhausted. This was, this was a big deal. He says, don't look at them. Look at the open door. Run for the door. Run. And he says, I'm coming soon. Verse 11. I'm coming soon. I'm going to be at the door. I'm there. I'm coming to meet you. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I know that they're beating on you. I know that they're fighting against you. I know that this has been a hard road. And some of your brothers and sisters, remember, we've been through five of these churches. Some of them have been taken down the road of the Nicolaitans. Some of them have taken down the road of the, of, uh, of the Jezebel teacher that, that appears elsewhere. Some of them have just kind of petered out. Some of them have forgotten their first love. But the Philadelphians, they're running hard. And he says, you keep running. Don't let anyone... Steal the crown that you have earned. You have run. Get to the end. Just don't look at them. And then he switches metaphors. Again. He goes into that second layer, that bottom layer of the, of the sandwich. The top layer was that key of David, and then inside all that juicy roast beef with melted cheese was that race. And then down at the bottom... I haven't eaten in two days to prepare myself for Arby's. Um, at the bottom, that bottom layer is this image of the New Jerusalem. Now, why the New Jerusalem? Well, this is written in uh, AD 94, 96, 98, somewhere in that neighborhood. In AD 70, uh, the Roman emperor had destroyed Jerusalem, had completely destroyed the city in a way that we cannot fathom. Been razed to the ground. Everything was gone. No one lived there. It was against the law to build the city there at this time. Um, later on, a later emperor would rebuild it as Aelina Capitolina. Aelia Capitolina names it after his boyfriend. What an insult to the Jews. Yes, yes, he does. Um, I'll let you guys go to Wikipedia on that one. Anyway, um, one of the good emperors, by the way. When you read about good emperors in Rome, it has nothing to do with morality. 
has to do with whether the empire fell apart while they were ruling or not. Um, but anyway, the city was completely empty. It was completely gone. So he says to him, hey, I know the temple is gone. I know Jerusalem is gone, but there's a new Jerusalem. I, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the series that, that the whole tension of the book of Revelation, the best way to understand the book of Revelation is that we are the beginnings, the church is the beginnings of new Jerusalem living in the midst of fallen Babylon. That God is doing something great that is being born in the midst of something that is terrible and awful and evil. And, and this new thing is being born. And he says, you get to be a part of that. And he says to him, not only do you get to be a part of it, let no one take your crown. In verse 11, so race, 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 run, run hard, don't look, open door, whole thing. You get to be a part of New Jerusalem. He who overcomes. Uh, the victor, the Greek word Nike, is the same uh, as my wife's, the origin of my wife's name. It was what the guy who got the Stephanos was, was the Nike, the victor, the overcomer. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, Stelos. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my city. Well, run, 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 run. Sleep when it's over. That's what he says. Do pillars run? No. Pillars don't run. Pillars do this. He says, you can stand still in the new Jerusalem. You can stand still at the end. But right now, run. 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 Run like your faith depends on it. Run like it's the most important thing in the world. Run. Don't worry and don't be distracted. When I was a kid, in, in, uh, I played flag football. That was the limit of my academic career. Uh, my, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Athletic. That's the word I was looking for. Eyes talks for a living. Um, the limit of my athletic career was I played uh, flag football until about fourth grade. Now, if you think I'm small now, you should see a picture of me in second or third grade. I was uh, about this tall, and it was all upper body, and my legs, my, my mom jokes around that when I ran, my legs moved at a million miles an hour, and I went nowhere. Um, and I had, you know, I played for this, this Christian school flag football team. And my dad used to say to me, my dad has such a, a way of being an encouragement in kind of a bizarre way. And uh, he used to say to me, now, son, the odds are you'll never get the football. Thanks, dad. But if you do, he says, I have one piece of advice for you. I said, okay, I'm listening. He says, run. Don't ever look back. Don't worry about who's following you. You run until the whistle is blown. You just keep running. Well, you can imagine what happened. Around third grade, I think it was, we were playing a game, um, and uh, the other team received the kickoff, and they went to pitch the ball. One guy went to, why? I don't know, because they're third graders. Um, they went to pitch the ball to another guy. Well, I was running because my father would always tell me, run, 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 run. So I'm running. Um, and I'm running, and I ran literally into the football. The pump! The football was in my arms. And Thomas seen me play football. I catch the ball like, Duh, you know, <laughs> um, I'm afraid it's going to hit me. Football hit me in the chest. I saw the end zone, and the only thing I cared about was what my dad had told me. You run! So I wrapped that football up, and I ran as hard as my little legs could possibly carry me. It, it couldn't have been more than five yards. It took me about three minutes. Um, <laughs> felt like it anyway. I ran, and I scored a touchdown. And it was a big deal because my grandfather paid me 10 bucks for a touchdown. Um, it's, it was incredible. It was awesome. 
I ran. I didn't look. I didn't care. There were bigger kids on the field. All that mattered to me was the second I got the ball, I was going to run. I was going to run as hard as I possibly could because that's what my dad told me to do. He said, don't look around. He said, you run. You find the end zone and you run and you hope that it's yours. You run. And that's what Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia. The faithful, the true, the bruised, the beat up, the worn out. He says, run. The door is open. Run. Don't worry about the people who are trying to knock you down. Run. Don't worry about the obstacles that are in your way. Run. I'm alongside and soon we're going to be together. Run. And if I could sum up this letter in, in one phrase, it would be this. Run now. Stand still when you're dead. Work now. Do the things that bring glory to God now. There'll be plenty of time to resting in the new Jerusalem. We're going to be pillars. We'll be able to stand still then. We'll be able to be comfortable then. But now, run. 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 Give everything. Pour all you are into the ministry the gospel of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean into the ministries of just this local church. We're only the launching base. We're only, we're, our purpose is to equip you with the Word of God so you go out and run. You think of, uh, you know, some people think of church as, as, uh, as a home plate, that our entire purpose in life is to, to go out briefly into the world and then come back to home plate. That's not what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be home base. We're supposed to fly out, do our thing, come back, get refueled, and fly out again. There'll be plenty of time for standing still later. But right now, we're supposed to run. He says to him, you'll never have to leave again. I'll write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. I love, by the way, that Jesus says, my God, my God, my God, my God. He says it four times, I think, if I'm not mistaken. He says, um, he says, uh, he says I'll make you a pillar in a temple of my God. I'll write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And then he says, and I will also write on you my name. He says, don't, don't think I haven't forgotten that you're running for my name. Right now we don't have it blazoned on us. We don't have a big advertisement across that says, running for Jesus, don't hit me. But as we run, he says, when you get there, you'll get the name. You'll be protected. You'll be in my place. But right now, you need to run. You need to run. You know, sometimes um, we talk about uh, the, the church and we talk about how um, uh, some, some churches are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Um, and, and it's very easy to become so focused on, I think when they mean that, they, they talk about theology and that stuff, which I have this feeling there will be no theological debates in, in heaven. You know, everybody says, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Noah this. No, you're not. You're going to get to heaven, you're going to be like... You're here? Wow. He didn't make it? Never would have suspected that. 
No, you're going to get in heaven. You're not going to worry about the theological. Oh, I'm going to, wait. I'm going to ask Jesus with the logical procession of, of... No, you're not. I'm going to ask about the six days of creation. No, you're not. You're going to be in the presence of God. And he's going to say, come into my temple. I'm going to make you a pillar. And we're going to worship. And it's going to be cool. And we're going to be singing. And there's going to be these weird, strange creatures with different features of different animals and stuff singing and you're going to be like whoa weird animal singing i will sing that song too i mean heaven is not going to be it's not going to be uh you know it's not going to be a theological debate it's going to be the presence of god there's not going to be any problems with that there's going to have to be any pharisees or sadducees there's not going to be any baptists or methodists or presbyterians or catholics or it's not going to be we're not going to care about that stuff we're going to care about is being in the presence of God. We will have finally gotten the crown and we're done running. But here on earth, we're in the racetrack and we're supposed to run. We're supposed to run. And that's what he says to the church of Philadelphia. He says, run. Don't give up. Keep running. So um, I'm going to close with a song uh, from Rich Mullins. And uh, if you don't know who Rich Mullin is, uh, first of all, you should find out. Go buy every one of his CDs because they're all fantastic. Um, or download them or whatever you've got to do. Don't steal them. 